If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What forms did corruption take in the ancient world? And how did it compare to the shady dealings of the 21st century? That's the question at the heart of a new international research project. And Matt Elton caught up with some of the experts involved, Drs. Shushma Malik, Marta Garcia and Yehuda Gershon, to find out more. So today I'm joined by a panel of experts to talk about um, corruption in the ancient world, which is a fascinating subject um, and one I didn't know much about before doing this. I wondered if we could just all go around first of all and um, introduce ourselves, if that's okay. Okay, um, my name is Marta Garcia, and I'm uh, the principal investigator of this project on corruption. So I'm working on on, uh, on Roman history and particularly on Roman economy. 
Hi, I'm Shishma and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Roehampton and I'm a co-investigator on the project and also work on Roman history, in particular Roman historiography, so things that were written about Roman history and I'm looking at ideas of, of corruption and how it's constructed within that genre. Hi, uh, I'm Yehuda Gershon. I'm the postdoctoral research fellow attached to the project. Um, I also have specialisms in uh, historiography, but uh, for this project on corruption, I'm looking primarily at Greek history and classical Athenian history in particular, and how it relates to taxes and corruption and democracy. Thank you all so much. Um, so I wanted to start by just asking quite a general question, which is that when we think about corruption today in today's world, we tend to think of sort of shady backroom deals or political self-interest. Um, are those the kind of things that we're talking about when we think about the ancient world? Or do we need to redefine a little bit what we mean by corruption here? Well, if I if I may start here, it, this is exactly the core of our um, interest. So the fact that we want to to expand the boundaries of the of the conception of corruption, uh, that we think that uh, that really corruption is not just about uh, about politics or about big corporations or or to business, and to, to put it in a way, we can talk about that later. But it's more than that. Not only in antiquity, but also in modern times. It's, it's also about, uh, of course, individual behavior and, and also our own position, our own how we relate with uh, our community and with society. So, and this is something that is, is one of the aims of our project and our investigation, uh, to make the connection between antiquity and the modern world, but also to um, study this awareness or make awareness about, about the fact that corruption is more than just politics or people abusing of public money, for instance. Yeah, um, corruption as we see it today has very much formalised in its meaning. We tend to think of uh, moral corruption, which of course we come from a, we, we inherit uh, perhaps uh, Christian perspectives, especially in the West, about what that means. Um, and we also think of, as Marta says, uh, economic uh, corruption. And, you know, if we think of the, the, the UN, for example, runs an anti-corruption project, uh, particularly aimed at developing countries. Um, and for them, that is what um, corruption corruption is. You go to their website and they say, why do you want to fight against corruption? They do it to strengthen democracy, to promote justice, to support education, to bring prosperity with that economic message there to safeguard development and improve public health. And the people it very much aims at are the media or government officials. And uh, we're coming at it from a, a, a much more uh, a transactional basis, looking at how individuals and elements of society uh, function. We're looking to push that, that definition much further and perhaps help us ourselves understand now what we mean by that. Yeah, one of the really interesting things I think about corruption, both ancient and modern and everything in between, is that no one has ever really been able to pinpoint what it means. <laughs> there are lots of different things written on it from different perspectives. And this it, we go round and round saying, well, is this something we can define legally? Is it something we can define morally? Clearly, it's something that, that crosses between the two. Um, an act can be corrupt, but not illegal, for example. Um, and so really what we're trying to do with our research is to think about how 
discussions about this in antiquity, of which there were a lot, um, they were very interested in this subject, can help us really to think also about how we can better understand the fluidity and the slippage in corruption now, because it's always going to be one of those words that has a very big realm of definitions attached to it. And antiquity can help us understand why that is as well, because that's something that that started um, a long time ago and continues in our own society. That's a really interesting point about this specific period as one to focus on, and we'll get onto that in a minute. Before we go any further, though, I wondered whether it might be helpful or even possible, so let's find out, to sort of come up with a few examples of what we're talking about here when we're talking about this expanded definition of corruption. What kind of things would we mean in the ancient world or perhaps even in other periods? Okay, so I can I can perhaps provide an example. Um, an example... Those examples in which we are particularly interested are those that not necessarily perhaps were illegal or were labeled as illegal in in that period, but that were perceived, at least by a majority of population or by the authors we're working with, as immoral. And uh, an example of it is, for instance, a typical issue and problem also that, that affects our modern societies, which is, for instance, uh, collusion by bidding in public contracts. This is something that was widespread in antiquity, in Greco-Roman antiquity, and that was very, very difficult to regulate. And that, of course, it went all the way to the individuals who took a decision at a certain point that was profitable for them, but not so profitable for the um, for the public uh, authorities or pu- for the public good and the money that was, of course, in place in these contracts. So tax gatherers, for instance, used to do that. This is a, a typical example of a situation in which corruption was in place very often, but it was very difficult to regulate and to punish accordingly. So this is interesting from a moral point of view. Um, I think a, a, a sort of simple modern example that people might uh, easily latch onto um, is the difference uh, between tax avoidance and tax evasion, um, as they are constituted, constituted uh, today. In that one is something that is prosecutable by law, the second of which is entirely legal but has a stink about it. Um, so, in some degrees, we inherit these categories. Um, but equally, someone who evades taxation, who hides their assets, uh, who uses uh, tax havens, may not be doing something that's technically illegal, but it is still corrupt. There's still some form, some some form of of something that seems not right. And um, placing a finger on that is perhaps the slippiest and trickiest thing to do. The example I want to bring up is actually um, the granting of citizenship. So. This is something that we've just started to think about a little bit more, I think, in our own um, context in the UK, with I with more being thought about on how uh, we should be extending citizenship to, for example, people who um, are settled here from the EU. Um, and also, how much should that cost? Should we be charging um, a lot of money for this? Should we be charging children for this? Is that a moral thing to do? Is that something that we should, as a country, be um, setting up as part of the way to enter into um, our society? 
And alongside with that economic argument, there's also a moral one. So what questions should be on the citizenship test? What should we be expecting people to know, people to do? What are the British values that we expect people to be participating in when they become citizens? So the relationship between those two things is really interesting because you've got the economic on the one side and you've got the moral on the other. And all of that is caught up in this question of of what citizenship is and who should have it. And that's something that really resonates in antiquity. So the Roman period in particular, because there were grants of citizenship that were going from Rome through the empire that in the Republican period were being given to people who'd been conquered, right? So so not all people in the provinces by any means, but some selections um, of people in the provinces. And then in the imperial period, the way this process works changes. So uh, the emperor can now start to give out citizenship to individuals or to groups, whereas before it had been more the remit of the Senate and the Roman people. So that then is seen in the historians as a a a corruption of, of old grants of citizenship to some extent. But what's really fascinating is the language, because like our problem of citizenship now, the language that's used to um, talk about this by the Roman historians also shows a slippage between the economic and the moral. What should you be? Um, what should what should should this be something that could be bought and sold? No, it shouldn't. Who is worth citizenship? What is that that value that they need to bring? Is it pure numbers, for example, for the army, or is it moral value? Do people need to show themselves to be good citizens um, in order to have citizenship? And then can it be taken away? Can you strip someone of citizenship for not performing in the right way? So these are questions that I think we're starting to think about more in our own society in particular, but really have a lot of history when we go back to antiquity and Rome in particular. Thank you so much. And does this period of antiquity represent a starting point for some of these conversations? Or is it simply that there were a lot of conversations happening in this period that makes it so fascinating to study? I think that is, is there's, of course, an, an intensity and, 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 and um, um, a great number of, of, uh, of authors who really discuss about this, this subject, both in public and also in private. And luckily, luckily, we have a myriad or big, really big selection of, uh, of sources from all genres, which is the, the interesting aspect. It's not just uh, political authors or authors who write about history or big episodes of history, we are also authors that talk and write about everyday life, um, about theatre, about uh, aspects that are not necessarily, or we will not necessarily in the first place connect with the topic of corruption. So this this brings us a great diversity of uh, of authors, but also of and social context in which we can explore. So this is what we have. And of course, we depend so much on what is preserved and what has been preserved throughout the ages. And this is one of the keys of, of the period we are working on. The, the, the problem or the thoughts about this problem, this social and cultural problem, does not start in antiquity, obviously. Uh, I think it's, it's something inherent to, to society and to to human beings, but uh, but luckily we have lots of information from this period. Yes, and one of the things that's um, 
I guess so relevant about this period is that uh British history in particular has used Greece and Rome because, you know, they're the classical precedents um, and are where the inheritors of that um, was, was the idea um, for quite a lot few periods in history. Um, they've used those, those texts in particular, the ones that remain, in order to try and construct understandings of, of law and, and morality in our own period and, and in our, our country. I think there's an awful lot that could be done that we three don't specialise in from Asia, from India, from China, um, all sorts of things. Um, but we're focusing a little bit more on the relationship between modern Britain and, um, and ancient Greece and Rome, because that is where modern Britain sees itself um, as uh, in terms of, of the, the sequence from antiquity to, to the present. Not to forget, if I may add, uh, something very simple, but that is very important, the vocabulary of corruption. So the word corruption comes, of course, from the Latin corruptio, and, uh, and which originally is, of course, linked with anything that is contaminated or spoiled or infected. And, and that was also um, applied to aspects like the body, as we do it with food, for instance. So this 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 idea that that corruption goes into ourselves morally and physically is rooted in antiquity and in in ancient thought. So philosophical thought, social, but also economic thought, and and this is something that has had massive influence in in uh, in modern mentalities as well. We mentioned citizenship there um, as one of the commodities. That gets kind of caught up, if you can see it like that, in terms of this corruption. Uh, are there other particular resources or particular uh, social things that were caught up in these corruption uh, stories? Yeah, I think it does. I think um, that's a really good question because it highlights exactly the the point that we think is so important that that corruption and these exchanges which can lead to corruption are as important in the private sphere as they are in the public sphere. So we generally tend to think of um, instances of corruption as being where the private um, invades on the public. So think of, um, you know, people using friend, you know, personal um, friends to uh, fulfill contracts, for example, that kind of thing, where the, the private and the public are crossing over. And of course, that is one way to define corruption. But what antiquity really shows us is there are a whole myriad of ways that don't necessarily um, fit that particular model. It can be to do with private relationships that are purely private. They can be about very straightforward things like coercing someone who is renting a flat from you. So um, there's an example in, in a uh, Greek author called Theophrastus of, of exactly this. So your, your landlord invites you for dinner and is like, oh, I'm putting up the rent, by the way. That's okay, isn't it? Kind of thing. Um, and that is uh, goes back to what uh, Yehuda was saying about how um, there's an expectation that you behave a particular way in order to function in society. And when you're not behaving in that particular way, it's not illegal, but it goes against that, that social norm, the expectation that, that the society has for you. So really, it's, it's, it's exactly about that. It's exactly about showing how private um, 
discussions how private relationships can be corrupted because there is such a well-defined idea in antiquity, such a well-defined idea about exactly how this system of, of private relationships should work and how it should live up to the moral standards of, of a public of uh, public interactions as well. Um, I'd like to take two excellent uh, two points from that excellent um, uh, argument there, and, and the first is just simply to to point out that if there's one story that people know about transaction, well, there's one story people know about antiquity is a transactional story, and that is of course the the story of the Trojan horse, a transaction that went went wrong. Um, so it's very much sort of built into our conception of how we understand we as readers of, 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 of sources and of literature understand uh, Greeks and, and Romans and how they engage with each other. And the second point I'd like to take from Shushma is the sense that there is a personal, uh, the, the personal and private aspects of this, that sometimes um, what happens internally may look different from outside, uh, that uh, value codes are in some ways determined by those that um, uh, enact transactions between them and that we coming from outside may have a completely uh, different, you know, we might impose our own moral sensibility, which is what I mentioned earlier about enact transactions between them and that we coming from outside may have a completely different, you know, we might impose our own moral sensibility, which is what I mentioned earlier about uh, Christianity and perhaps, and perhaps um, one of the most interesting sort of comparative ways we can uh, we classicists, we ancient historians can look at the field of anthropology, for example, is to realise that uh, there's an interesting study by an anthropologist called Campbell in the 1950s who actually went to Greece and looked and looked at a, a mountainous people there and determined that what looked like was looked like corruption uh, from the outside was attached, in fact, based on an entirely internalised value system where basically outsiders weren't trusted to do the right kinds of transactions. Therefore, it was okay to quote unquote cheat them because they didn't understand the right the right code. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So there was a lot more discussion about exactly how corruption would work. Is it the lack of doing something? Is it re returning a favour and, and uh, but not doing it in the correct way? Is it about um, the uh, an economic transfer? These were ongoing discussions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. The NBA playoffs are here and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. We've talked a couple of times about things that seem to have quite modern parallels. So we've talked about uh, hyper-commercialization. We've talked about private landlords. I mean, is there value in drawing connections between the present day and what we're talking about here? Or does that risk flattening what we've just talked about there? Some of the more specific case studies or stories where things aren't uh, mappable onto our current day morality. I think that um, comparative history is absolutely essential to understand not only the past, but also the present. But because we're all historians, after all, and uh, we are, of course, we need to take into consideration every specific context in which these actions, these performances, but also this third or line of thoughts were happening. And of course, we cannot transfer completely things that happened in the past with uh, to our modern world. But there are amazing parallels. And these parallels, of course, have to do also with certain continuity of, of values, of social codes that have been transmitted through time in, in some countries, others, in what we used to call the Western world. So there is some uh, some line of continuity there. And, and uh, many of these authors, for instance, we, we find them again, of course, transform into something different, for instance, in the in the famous works by Adam Smith. So there's something there that, that continues and, and in which we can see reflections. But it's very, very, very important, of course, not to forget the context in which these authors write, because when we were talking before about Seneca and about Cicero, these were all, of course, men from the elites, from the senatorial elite, who, who were also political leaders of their time. So very, very prominent authors of their time who were very worried about um, things changing and society changing and, of course, affecting their position. And this is all reflected, these fears, this, this also loss aversion, if we are using a modern term, was, of course, affecting their, their thoughts. And, uh, and it's something that in which we can find these parallels no? in times of uncertainty, of fears. Um, these works are created in which uh, 
these moral authors try to go back to the roots, try to establish a framework of that is firm and it's solid and uh, a guidance in which we can really, really, uh, we can follow because everything is crawling, everything is collapsing. So this is something, one of the lunges of the world. Of course, the context is different, but there are many, many human aspects, social aspects, cultural aspects that we can certainly connect. Um, I'd like to pick up uh, an example that, that of this sort of comparative method that, that sprung to mind last week. Uh, and that's the example of, of tax havens. Um, and for us, that seems like a very fairly... It seems like a fairly modern phenomenon. It might, yes, it might be some sort of hangovers of, of empire. It might seem to us like that. Uh, and I was thinking in particular about a, a book I'd read about I don't know, 10 years ago uh, by uh, Nicholas Jackson uh, called uh, Treasure Islands, in which he basically made the argument that uh, tax havens were essentially a functional part of the modern British democracy, that we built them to the state, and it was all quite deliberate. And then I was reading, as I mentioned, about uh, how how wealth and how land was assessed for uh, tax purposes in Athens. And I'm reading that uh, Athens takes over a particular uh, island um, and they start hanging up parcels of, of grain. And actually these go to very rich men. And somehow this, this isn't incorporated into the tax assessment that is happening when it comes time to, to decide whether their income is for when the taxes are due. So this famous feels like a state that has deliberately allowed its own citizens to bypass its own its own tax laws. And the temptation is, of course, to see quite what seems like with Jersey, for example, what seems like quite a, a, a close match between state functions that seem contradictory. So for two weeks, I've had this feeling of, of, insense, of in, 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 intense modernity in antiquity. But of course, this will unravel as you research more. But that is the benefit of, of comparative studies, that it, it brings home to you exactly both your present that you're you're living in and, and the past that you're 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 working your way out around. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, one of the things that is so valuable about comparative history is not saying, look, um, it's all been done before. You know, we've uh, we we've seen this in antiquity. This is the same thing that's happening today. It's not the same. It's as as Marta said that it's very different contexts and very different ideas that are associated with the ways that we interpret um, what's going on around us. Where the value is, though, is to see how the partly to see how the hangovers of things that have happened in antiquity can still be in little ways that we make assumptions today. So the assumptions that we make about corruption, the assumptions we make about the social and the economic and the relationship and how that should be, there are little kernels of this that you see, oh, okay, so that's come through that particular discourse you know, Adam Smith reading his Seneca has thought about this and then has has put it over here and, and is is that's then been the set up uh, a whole system of economics that we now, you know, are revising again. And so it's it's more that it's so useful to understand in much more detail how antiquity has understood these things because um we we have 
we have little bits of them that resonate in in modern day um, understandings in in modern day journalism. They they crop up all over the place, and and it's it's fascinating then to see how it was thought about in antiquity, which of course is going to be different from today, but also how those changes can happen, how context can facilitate different understandings. And that in and of itself is a really fascinating thing to study and to be able to pick apart. And that's what we're really trying to do, pick apart antiquity in order to be able to understand how to pick apart today. (laughs) Um, Something I'm fascinated by is, is the idea that we've drawn we've almost deliberately drawn on the morality of this period, or at least the mechanisms um, to inform our current day understanding of this. How do you think we need to re-understand this period and the role of corruption within it to make better sense of, of both that period and our own? I think the main thing I would say, which is the point of the project, which is why we um, wanted to do this research, is that we do need to... Um, uh, we re-evaluate antiquity without being anachronistic. And by this, I don't mean that, that scholars have been anachronistic up to this point, uh, absolutely not. But rather, it's about widening our parameters of how we understand corruption to have been articulated in antiquity. So um, <clears throat> rather than thinking about it simply as, um, for example, the relationship between public and private, which for very good reasons, we're very um, prone to do because that's the way that corruption generally manifests itself in our period, in our modern world. Um, it is about uh, the big headlines you get up precisely about that, where people are using um, their public offices for private gain, that kind of thing. Um, rather, in antiquity, it was so much more. Uh, it was under. It was so much more. Um, fluid. So there was a lot more discussion about exactly how corruption would work. Is it the lack of doing something? Is it re- returning a favour and, and uh, but not doing it in the correct way? Is it about um, the uh, an economic transfer? These were ongoing discussions. And I think one of the things that we have found so fascinating in the project and, and been able to really um, you know, make some some ground with is thinking about all of these different ways of of conceptualising corruption that were there in antiquity. So not being hindered by our modern uh, preconceptions about it or trying not to be hindered anyway. We're all guilty of that, I'm sure, a bit. But trying to break away from looking for the modern in the ancient or looking for modern definitions back in the ancient to really letting the ancient material go and be as as free as possible and trying to find um, or trying to understand how different writers in different periods um, understood these um, the, the way that corruption could take place in all of its different forms and that's um, something that that has been re- truly fascinating because it really has got such a wide range of definitions in antiquity that we can really get our teeth into. Yeah, my my own study of of the sort of economic transactional tax systems of, of classical Athens, I've tried very much to to set morality to one side. I mean, as far as one can. Um, and what's been more fascinating is sort of seeing modern scholars' responses as they do simple things such as simply describing what's happening as they see it um, and t- t- casting general cultural aspersions. You know, I was reading a tax description 
um, by uh, by uh, an American academic, and in classical Athens, the the the, the, the tax burden fell heavily on on the wealthy. And in the middle of all this stuff, uh, of his descriptions, he, he'd be like, he, he tried to explain, oh well, every world every world he would be on the fix if they could, but as it happens, it was just the rich people, so they they were the ones trying to avoid taxes. And then I read a description by a Danish uh, academic doing similar kinds of things, explaining how taxes work. And what's Denmark now? It's a social state with high taxes. And what's what's his opinion about taxes in the ancient world? Well, it's much to be as expected. Um, so it's very, very important that, that we sort of, as far as possible, lay these things at the door, or at least recognise them in ourselves or or, or 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 in others without being too critical. I'm just, I'm, I'm I'm joking a little bit there because I'm sure these their own, these these academics are perfectly well aware of their own cultural backgrounds themselves. Sometimes also, so one of the learnings really uh, from this project, and and I think uh, the three of us and, and the whole team also uh, is is has been dealing with is is of course these assumptions of what is corruption of what is not that are so much influenced by point of views, different opinions, observers. Um, actors who are involved and how this is very, very malleable and and very blurring in some occasions, particularly when it's not legally but finite. So um, we are learning a lot that uh, sometimes some see something that is right like a gift and others interpret it like an act of corruption, depending on the context. And uh, also we are learning about what is worth and what is not and how to understand why these things happen, why we create these thoughts and these assumptions. Thank you so much. I'm aware, um, to draw this to a close, I'm aware throughout I've been kind of talking about the uh, kind of ancient world as if it's one unit, when obviously you guys have all got various different specialisms and there's all sorts of different stories. Are there any other sort of case studies or individuals or stories that you help, that you think illuminates this, this subject? There is actually a, a very interesting anecdote that, that tells us about uh, about grain dealers in antiquity, which so grain and corn that was a very important essential commodity in antiquity, and uh, it goes back to the Hellenistic period. So when uh, sailors going from Alexandria, so Egypt was the big producer of grain at the time, going from Alexandria to Rhodes, and there are several sheep. Um, transporting this grain. But the first one that arrives, of course, has a moral dilemma that has to do with the fact that he knows that the others are coming. But the others, so the people in Rhodes, don't know that detail. So there is a dialogue between two philosophers who uh, discuss if it's fair, if it will be fair to sell the commodity for the normal market price that was useful at the time, even if it's a bit under that uh, that uh, price. One says that it's fine because the sailor is considering that uh, the, the market price and that this is a fair price. The other one says that it's not because, of course, it's omitting, uh, concealing a very important information that has to do with the, uh, of course, uh, with the grain and the scarcity and the moment of, of famine that uh, can suffer roads. And in fact, this is an aspect that illuminates the problem of silences and how this can actually lead also to corruption. Um, so my closing story is a 
episode from uh, the a Roman historian named Cassius Dio. Uh, so Cassius Dio is writing in the late second century CE, um, and but he's writing a history that spans from the earliest period in Rome through to um, his own time, roughly speaking. So one of the interesting things about the way emperors take over the role of granting citizenship is then, of course, we get some salacious stories about where they do it wrong. And one of the people who uh, gets labelled with this and targeted uh, most is the Emperor Claudius. So he is the fourth emperor of Rome um, in the same dynasty as Augustus, so the Judeo-Claudians. And uh, so we're sort of in the the, um, just before the mid-first century CE. And he is interested in in expanding citizenship but also expanding who is allowed to be a senator so he's playing around with ideas of 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 what makes a roman really more than we've seen before in this period in in terms of the emperors um and cassius dio is uh, quite uh clear that that of the problems with this and he he confronts um and accuses uh claudius in his histories of of being completely corrupt with the way that he interprets citizenship and handles citizenship. So in Cassius Dio, um, Claudius is accused of buying and selling. And not only does he buy and sell uh, citizenship or allows people to buy and sell citizenship himself, but he allows his freedmen and his wife to do so as well. So Messalina, his wife, is also accused of being able to sell citizenship to whomever she should decide on a whim. Um, And this is very clearly a corrupt act in the eyes of of Cassius Dio. Um, But not only does he do that in that very economic way of of, um, giving and and, uh, giving to people who aren't necessarily worth these awards, um, he also takes citizenship away from people for not performing certain tasks. So he takes citizenship away from a person because they can't speak Latin. So he assumes that that's something that as a Roman citizen, you should be able to do, speaks to this person in Latin when they can't understand, um, takes the citizenship away. So this story as well really underlines to Ca- uh, what Cassius Dio interprets as how an emperor can use and abuse citizenship for his own in his own way, with his own whims. So taking it away on the one hand and granting it to unworthy people on the other is the is the height of hypocrisy. Um, And this is really something that Cassius Dio takes quite a long time to tell you about in the history. It's quite a big section of the Claudius Claudius bit. So that's a a good way to think about how corruption can work on that sort of high level as well. That was Shushma Malik, Marta Garcia and Yehuda Gershon. You can find out more about their project by searching for Twisted Transfers, Discursive Constructions of Corruption in Ancient Greece and Rome. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? 
You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.